You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. All right, everybody ready? Yes. Here we go. Uh, we're going to hustle a little bit. We've got a lot to talk about. And I want to leave time at the end, just some practical questions, and uh, which then limits how much I can talk. That's, that's a concern. Uh, here's, what was, here's how I want us to start. Uh, you can either talk about this at your table with whoever you're sitting with, or you can just jot this down. Uh, I want to take two or three minutes, and I want you to write down two or three minutes. And this, I, I think counselors somewhere would yell at me for what I'm about to do. I'd like to take two or three minutes, and I would like you to write down your greatest fear, greatest anxiety, you see as the biggest threat to your marriage, your future marriage, um, or your children. Okay? Um, so if you're single, what are you most concerned with in terms of finding a spouse or what you might find when you find a spouse? Um, if you're married, we see as the two or three biggest threats or points of fear for you with regards to your marriage. If you have children, top two or three points of fear, threats, concerns about your children. I'm going to give you exactly two and a half minutes to write down your dark side, your deepest, darkest fear. Go. What's up? Your shadow self or whatever the, whatever the newest lingo is. Go. I said go. about 60 more seconds. Tell many of you are not afraid of anything. Without fear. Just a good way to live. Remember those t-shirts that said no fear? The no fear t-shirts? It's like an extreme sports thing. Alright, I want you to look at what you wrote down when you talked about whatever. Uh, I want you to think about, I want you to make a couple of observations. Um, were they primarily internal or external? Internal or external? Me? Yeah. They were both. So you had two, and one, one of each. 
Yeah, okay? Internal or external? Both. Anybody? Internal, okay? I fear nothing. What's external? Okay. How about you guys? Internal or external? Both. Internal or external? External. External. External, of course. Internal, external. Internal. Internal. Okay, second thing. Uh, um, as you think about those, uh, those fears of anxieties, how much of it has to do with um, your own sin, your own proclivities to sin? So, so not just internal to the marriage, but internal to you. People have that? Okay, good. Um, I, I want to I talk about today why uh, greatest threats to your children, greatest threats to your marriage, um, are this uh, toxic and perfect mix um, of internal and external. How the two kind of work together. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some practical steps. Okay, how do we resist that? We're going to go back uh, again, kind of remind you where we started last week. Um, with Ephesians 6, actually we started like over a month ago uh, with, the, with the sermon series. And uh, will somebody read for me Ephesians 6, uh, beginning in verse 10 and reading through verse 20. With loud vigor. I got it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, that we put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, that we put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening much my mouth bodily to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. So we're back to where we started last month. Um, we, we began with just the, the fundamental assertion that we are at war. Um, this is not peacetime. You do not live in a day and age in which you are safe. You do not live in a day and age and a time um, in which you do not have enemies who are actively seeking to destroy you and kill you. Um, You do not live in a day and age in which you do not have a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Um, And and so when you think about this life, when you think about this age, when you think about how God has called us to live, um, God has called us to be equipped, to be armed, to be clothed. Uh, with the armor of God. We, we do not live in a peacetime life. We live in a hostile territory. So we understand. Territory that's claimed by Jesus. A society that's claimed by Jesus. He is its rightful king and ruler. 
Um, and we are surrounded by, absolutely surrounded by, hostile forces, hostile ideas, hostile movements, hostile powers. And they have an enormous amount of money. And really, 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 really smart people. And so to get our head around what we're going to be talking about this morning, you have to begin with, when you think about your marriage, you have to think about your marriage as what does it look like to be married in an age when there is massive hostility to your marriage. And not just at like a political level. Like not just at um, kind of a, a societal level. But there is great hostility to to the concept of a God-glorifying marriage in our day. And billions of dollars and the smartest people on the planet are being spent to undermine, to erode, not just the concept of marriage, although that's true, but your marriage specifically. morning. Got it? You're raising children in an age in which billions of dollars, mind-blowing technological advances, all bent to the personal destruction of your children is going on right now. That's the day and age in which we are raising our children. And I I believe that most Christians live in denial of that. Now there's a small group of Christians who aren't in denial of that and become rabid conspiracy theorists. Uh, I'm not suggesting that. But I am asking that you have clear eyes about the way that the Bible describes the world. Not QAnon, not whatever else. But how the Bible describes the world. And how the Bible describes the world is that there are principalities... And powers, and the devil himself, that are over or in, they they rule, they exercise some measure of power in this age, and they are at war with you, with marriage, your marriage, specifically your marriage, and children, specifically your children. And, and, And it's absolutely vital. In fact, everything else we're going to talk about this morning um, should be coming out of this sort of reorientation around the times in which we live um, and and the the environment in which we are raising children, pursuing godly marriages that would honor Jesus. Um, And and I want to say that the principalities and powers are particularly bent on sexual confusion, undermining marriages, undermining your marriage, and undermining children. And the reason is, is it's foundational to what God is building on the earth, continuing to build on the earth. We're actually going to see this today in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Foundational to what God is actually up to in the world. Not ancillary to it, not um, kind of a a nice add-on or a cute like like family photos kind of deal. Uh, But foundational to what God is doing is a, a husband and a wife raising children. That, that, that's not just a, a secondary thing, like you have world missions over here, and that's what God's really doing, and then over here we have husbands and wives and children, and that's kind of a secondary calling. Now, I would actually say central to God's plan from 
literally day one, like literally day one, has been a man and a woman in the fear of the Lord, in worship to the Lord, loving the Lord, coming together in covenant union and marriage, and raising children, the fruit of that covenant, um, to fear, know, love, treasure Christ above all things. That is the foundational means by which God intends to fill the earth with his glory, to bring honor and glory and renown to him for all ages. That mechanism is central to the engine of the world, the engine of history, what God is up to. So, if you have a whole bunch of principalities and powers with billions and billions of dollars and the smartest people on the planet and the most incredible technological advances ever conceived of by man, and they're going to set their sights on something, what are they going to set their sights on? School. They're going to set it at marriage, children, school is going to be one of the, st- one of the expressions of that. They're going to set their sights on destroying, eroding marriages, Destroying and eroding the mechanism by which God intends to glorify himself. One of the primary mechanisms by which God intends to glorify himself on the earth. Namely, the raising of covenant children who know and fear and love God. So, given that there are principalities and powers at work, um, I want to spend just a couple of minutes right here up front um, talking about what are the principalities and powers doing? What are they saying? How are they they, um, undermining kind of all of society? really trying to undermine all of God's purposes in society, and it all is ultimately going to begin with um, uh, what I would say is a redefinition of the self, of what it means to be human. Um, that's kind of where it all kind of originates. That's at the root of it. If you want to look behind the curtain of basically every Disney movie, um, if you want to look behind the curtain of basically every, <laughs> every popular thing out there, um, it is a fundamental redefinition of the human person. Um, I'm going I'm, I'm to recommend two books to you. Uh, both of them are saying the exact same thing. One is saying it longer and with more historical context. One is saying it shorter and with more immediate context. Uh, this is the shorter version. It's called Strange New World by Carl Truman. This is the longer version called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Um, and they are both, I can't recommend them too highly. Um, extremely highly. I we had a few copies upstairs a few weeks ago, and now we do not. So you have to order it on your own. Um, they are phenomenal books, important books, really to understanding um, what are the principalities and powers up to. Um, so I say this to you as, uh, as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as wives, um, and as just individuals trying to make sense of the world. Uh, th- these two books um, do a phenomenal job kind of articulating, at least today, what are the principalities and powers up to? So um, the the way Truman is going to describe this, and he's building on the work of a whole bunch of different theologians and philosophers and sociologists, is to essentially say that the fundamental shift that's taking place in our world um, is a redefinition of the self. And and where in prior ages, and I would even say specifically as we read the Bible, um, the self is something that you receive. It's not something you make. It's not something that's self-determined. Rather, your identity as a human being is received. It's received in your biology. It's received from your parents. It's received from your church. It's received from your tribe. It's something that's given to you. And then you wield that thing faithfully. You wield that thing in accordance with um, the one who's given it to you, supremely God, submitted to his word and seeking to honor him with it. 
Today, the self is uh, what, what Carl Truman will call um, the autonomous self. And the self doesn't exist as um, something that you receive. Your biology is not something you receive. Your gender is not something you receive. Your sexuality is not something that you've received. Um, your your uh, uh, vocation and your, your whole kind of the core of what makes your life yours is not something that you receive from God and therefore receive under his authority. It's something that you make for yourself. Uh, this is easily illustrated through social media. What does everybody do on Instagram? They're curating a vision of their life for everyone else. Does that make sense? You're choosing what you want other people to see because you're choosing what you want other people to think about your life. So you don't post pictures of your kids throwing pillows at you, screaming and angry. Say when they're 13 and they're going through a weird time. You you don't post pictures of um, you and your wife Frustrated, unable to speak to one another. You know, like post like a little loop video. I would definitely not recommend it. So I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying you don't ever do this. If you're and your wife unable to talk, arguing, angry, and you're saying something that's sinful and wicked to you, you don't post that picture online. You post pictures of the life that you want people to think you have. In other words, you curate kind of the, this this autonomous self that this self-made image of what you think you are. But the root of this is something that is both erotic and therapeutic. And so therapeutic in the sense that it is everyone deserves to be happy. You get to figure out for yourself what will make you happy. You get to determine for yourself what would make you happy. In other words, happiness is not something that's attained or received through obedience to God, through faithfulness, through fruitfulness, through the blessing of God. Rather, happiness is deciding for yourself, what do I want? What do I want to be? And then having the freedom and the means of pursuing that. Make sense? Yes. So think about Frozen, which is the same exact story of every Disney princess movie ever. I have this identity, this secret power. I can make things freeze. And um, and I'm not like the rest of my family. I don't really get along with my parents, even though they're really nice. There's nothing about her parents in Frozen that I remember, which they're particularly cruel. Not like my sister. I have a secret power, therefore I come off as a Frozen girl. One of those girls who it's cold, literally. <laughs> then how do I discover myself? I break out from the oppressive identity that's been given to me and Determined by who I was born to, my parents, and what it means to be a non-freezing things princess. I go out and live in the wilderness where I'm free to discover myself and have a frozen snowman friend. Who sings really annoying songs. Then I come back and I show my powers and who my true self is to my family. It's a good story. It's a happy story. They accept me. I my secret powers and my self-determined identity not received from my family am able to save the world. Now, here's the crazy thing. I watched that movie with my kids. Hated it. Before I even thought about the philosophy at the root of that story with my kids. 
But guess what you just trained your kids in as they watch it? whole different understanding of the self. An understanding of the self that's actually out of line with scripture. Um, uh, and and, and th- this idea that, um, I said therapeutic, so it's a pursuit of happiness. I also said erotic. The reason why I said erotic um, is because foundational, re- really since Freud on, foundational of the human identity and human happiness is sexual fulfillment. And sexual, uh, sexual fulfillment and sexual expression. Um, and, and so foundational, if we're going to have a society that's equal and fair and good and everyone's free to pursue happiness, then that means, again, sexuality and gender and all the things attached to that biblically are not something that you have to receive. That would be unjust. That would be oppressive. That would be a real, it would make no sense to our society. Instead, if people are to be truly free, truly um, free to pursue this autonomous identity, then they must pursue Whatever sexual identity, sexual um, fulfillment, wherever they want it, and however they want it, however many times they want it, and to express themselves sexually however they want. And now we've reached a point, kind of a tipping point. This is actually the impetus for Truman's book. I mean, he says uh, on the very first page, the the whole impetus for writing this book um, was the thought experiment of um, the, the phrase, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. It is a perfectly, relatively perfectly normal phrase in our day. And for his grandfather, it would have been uninterp- uh, un- completely not understandable. And so he's asking the question, what changed? What changed in a couple generations? Such that that statement now makes complete sense to most people living in the West. And just 50 years ago, it made almost no sense to anyone living in the West. So now that we've reached, we've reached a point where self-expression is so foundational, the autonomous self is so foundational that we must be free actually of our physical bodies. We must be free of our, the, the, the gender that we are given in our birth. But at the heart of all of this is the exact same lie that's been told from the very, very beginning. And that's actually the piece I want, to, I want you to nail down as, you begin to, as we begin to now transition to thinking about specifically our marriage and our kids. It is ultimately a self that must be free from God. So when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And oftentimes it's seen as just like that, that tree represented an arbitrary rule that God put in place so that Adam and Eve um, just had a rule. Like God's kind of... You know, like sometimes you say, child, don't touch the remote control. What do they go touch? The remote control. Good job, Hayes. You're getting rhetorical questions. Um, they go straight for the remote control. Hey, leave, leave your daughter's toy alone. Like we think of it in terms of that. It's not what the tree of knowledge of good and evil was. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was ultimately... Um, there, that phrase that, that is translated knowledge of good and evil um, it's, it's a Hebrew phrase it's only used one other place it's only traditionally used one other place and that um, referred to the coming of age uh, of a child to, to, into an adulthood they had attained to the knowledge of good and evil um, and so here is not just like a cognitive understanding of good and evil um, but rather a knowing a choosing of good and evil so what's happened at the tree in the garden is that Adam and Eve 
in, eating, in being forbidden from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God is commanding them not just to not eat a certain piece of fruit. He's actually commanding them, I, I want you to forever be dependent on me and my word for understanding and knowing what is good and what is evil. To eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an assertion that, no, I will be independent of God in choosing for myself what is good and what is evil. The autonomous self. A self free from God. self free from the constraints by which he's bound the world and made the world. Free from the good, to be free even from the good gifts that God's given you in your body, in your desires, and who you are, and how you express yourself. In other words, the foundational lie from the beginning in Genesis 2, it may have new expressions, really um, advanced expressions in our day, but it has always been the same thing. And the thing that is at war with your children has always been at war with your children. The thing that's always been at war with your marriage, the thing that's always been at war with you, has been that fundamental idea that I can be free from God. Today it expresses itself in certain technological ways, it expresses itself in certain biological um, and medical movements, it expresses itself in uh, a, a kind of liberated sexuality, liberated It expresses itself in a whole number of different ways, but at the end, the fundamental issue is the exact same as it was in Genesis chapter chapter 3. 2. Now I'm confused. It's definitely 3. Genesis chapter 3. I will be free from God. And then here's where the, the, the brilliance, the wicked brilliance of the principalities and powers in this moment comes to bear. The exact thing that they're teaching, catechizing us and our children in, through movies, through books, through commercials, through all of the bottom line assumptions at work in our modern kind of secular age, at work in the way politics is framed, at work in the way that, um, in the way that the, the sexual revolution is, is, is framed, at, at work in almost every, you can't watch a TV show or a movie um, or read a modern novel without seeing this at the root of it, is they are specifically targeting, magnifying, blessing the fundamental nature of sin in every human heart. Does that make sense? So, so the nature of original sin is the desire to be free from, to be liberated from the authority of God, the word of God, the moral decrees of God. And the fundamental thing happening all around us, again, billions of dollars, smartest people on the planet, the most mind-blowing technological advances imaginable. I mean, uh, I read an article about how social media is designed to, a, to create addiction. Designed. They want you to be on their platforms as long as they possibly can. To see as many ads as they can make you see because that generates revenue for them. And all of that is bent to feed, bless, encourage, nourish um, what, what John and Paul would call the flesh. The, the fundamental part of us, apart from Christ, apart from the grace of God, and yet still present even with those who are Christians, I'm the part of you that wants to be free from God. 
Now, if that's true, it's true for your children. It's true for your children in a way that's terrifying. But because unless you teach them how to recognize what's happening in front of them, um, they'll never see it. Because the way this thing works is it doesn't come and present an argument over against the Bible to kind of um, to make you kind of judge and evaluate, hey, what's the right argument here? It's way, way, the, the, the principalities and powers are way smarter than that. It creates an entire atmosphere, an entire culture, a whole set of assumptions about the way the world is and the way the world works and what's right and what's wrong, what's just, what's unjust. Um, it, it, it reframes everything in the world using stories, using songs, using language, using um, even the presuppositions that would stand behind a news report or behind a commercial. It takes all of that and it immerses you in a world in which the Bible's view of things is strange and offensive and oppressive. And this autonomous self version of the world is obvious, is clear, is how could you live any other way? And that's how it works. In other words, it it rarely, if ever, presents itself in formal arguments. It rarely, if ever, presents itself in um, in, in the form of propositions. Um, You you, you can't see it. It's not like laid out for you and you go like, oh, this is clearly, they don't put like a warning label on the movies. Um, They don't, like before a commercial comes on, they say, now this is a version of the secular human self. Like it it just is, it's just everywhere. And that's... um, that's where we're gonna. That's where we're gonna begin. Is we're gonna think practically about um, how do we then wage war against these principalities and powers, um, and how do we wage war on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of our marriage, um, and on behalf of our kids. Last week we began um, by essentially trying to establish one fundamental thing. That one fundamental thing was that we go to the Word. That we are people of the book, of the word. We go to the word, we read the word, we pray the word, we counsel with the word, we think about the world through the lens of scripture. The scripture is foundational to us. Um, it is foundational to how we understand who we are, how we understand how we live in this world. That we always go back to the Bible. We don't depend on our emotions. We don't depend on our, um, on our particular tastes. We don't depend on our sentiment. We don't depend on how we feel icky or not icky about a thing. We go back over and over and over again to say that all of who I am is to be submitted to the scriptures, is to be submitted to God ultimately, and as God has revealed himself and revealed his description of the world in the word. And we always go back there. We never depart from that. That's still central to us. And and here's what what I want to take that one step further. We want to make worldly thinking strange. To ourselves and in our homes. And we want to make biblical thinking, the biblical understanding of the world, normal. Does that make sense? In other words, the way that we talk, the way that we think about our neighbors, the way we think about social movements, the way that we think about abortion, the way that we think about homosexuality, The way that we think about transgenderism, the way that we think about greed and pride, the way that we think about everything in the world, the way that we think about the relationship between children and parents, the way that we think about a relationship between a husband and a wife, 
We want the worldly, the, 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 the secular, humanistic understanding of the world to be strange, to be alien. And on the other hand, we want the Bible to be normative. A Christian worldview, a Christian understanding of marriage, a Christian understanding of morality, a Christian understanding of ethics, a Christian understanding of authority, a Christian understanding of justice. We want that to be the normal way in which we think, in which our marriage is framed, in which our children think. Let me give you an example of this. I have one child in this room. He won't be that embarrassed. He's unembarrassing. Maybe he's. Um, we were talking about politics. I remember driving in the car. I think we were in Fort Worth. Um, and uh, we were driving. We were talking about politics. And our kids were getting to the age where they're asking all kinds of questions about, well, do you want to vote for Obama? Or do you want to vote for this person? Like, who are you going to vote for? Why are you going to vote for him? Um, and, uh, and so then over that course of that conversation, the issue of abortion came up. And I said essentially that was like a, a foundational kind of non-negotiable issue for me. To me, it's a lit, as far as I understand it, it is a litmus test between good and evil. Like it is um, a, a basic qualification to, what, to, to see if someone is actually worthy of or qualified for office is, is how you view that issue. So we started talking about this thing, abortion. My kids don't even have any idea what abortion is at that point. And then one of them says, what is abortion? And so then describe them what abortion is. And my kids didn't believe me. That, that was actually a thing that happens. Like that, that actually happens. Like they kill babies like in the womb. And so we had a whole conversation, but the, the, the thing that, was, that I want to impress upon you is like, my kids are sitting in the backseat of my car and they're shocked. That's the strangest idea imaginable to them. And not just because they'd never been exposed to it, but it was a clear expression of the upside-down nature of, the, the wicked nature of, um, a secular worldview, a secular way of um, framing society um, and framing how the world works. Um, I can go to other conversations that we've had about homosexuality. I can go to all, all kinds of other conversations. But, but here's where I want us to begin. As you talk about what is moral and good and what is evil and what is immoral, what is, what is wicked and how you frame the world for your kids... And your marriage. The Bible's worldview should be normal. And a secular worldview should be strange. Now, now not unknown. But strange. So what the Bible holds out as normative. A husband who loves his wife. Leads his wife. Lays down his life. For the good of his wife. The holiness of his wife. A wife who loves her husband, honors her husband, submits to her husband. That should be normal. That should be like the normal expectation for your children. Normal expectation is you think about what dating looks like if you're single. Um, what marriage could look like if you're, um, if you're single. Like that should be the normal way, kind of non-negotiable. Like man, things outside of that are really weird. Does that make sense? And... I say all that because like, one of the biggest tricks being played on this right now is that um, it is to pigeonhole Christians into thinking like, hey, your way of understanding sex, your, understanding of way, understanding, your way of understanding ethics, your, your way of understanding morality, that's really weird. It's really outdated. It's, it's really oppressive and strange. Increasingly, it's, it's, it's understood as evil. 
But, but for us, it should be like the normal way of thinking, the normal way that our children are raised into the world, that children should obey their parents. And the parents have authority, have real authority in the home. Like those things should be normative. Um, so make worldly thinking strange. Make biblical thinking normal. Um, establish in your home the relationship between a, a husband and a wife and then with your children a whole posture of gratitude. Particularly around gratitude to God. Like one of the, one of the most effective habits uh, ingredients in the culture of your home um, that, com- that can combat the, 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 whole, the whole concept of the autonomous self is a posture when you can't even sit down to eat without stopping and giving thanks to God that there's food to eat. Does that make sense? I keep saying that. I'm going to stop asking if it makes sense. Because I know it makes sense. Because it's English words and they go together. Um, it, it, it's the idea that like you, you're stopping to acknowledge that everywhere you turn, God is giving you something. He's blessing you. He's giving you food. He's giving you a body. He's giving you the ability to... Run. Some of you run fast. Some of us don't. We just don't like to run. Um, some of you run long, really stupidly long distances, and that's insane. Just receive the limits the Lord has placed upon you. And so, um, um, he, He's given you sex. He's given you marriage. Like, um, like, like, saturate your home with gratitude and thanksgiving. Um, Paul tells us uh, over in Timothy that, that things are actually made holy. Um, when they're received with gratitude and prayer. Um, that there is a kind of sanctifying effect on everything. Whether it's TV. I mean, I give thanks to God for football on Saturdays. Like I do, literally. I, and I, it's kind of spontaneous. It's not like a little ritual. I literally get up, turn on game day, and I give thanks to God for Kirk Street And for the NCAA football program. Like that, that's, and then that may sound silly, but it's not. I give all, all things, Paul says. Not all things except for silly things. All things are made holy through gratitude and, giving, and, and prayer. It's by giving thanks to God for it and, and acknowledging that, openly acknowledging that in prayer. Now I want you to think about how this works. When your life is saturated with that posture, two things happen. First, if, if God has given us beer, which he has, I can't use that beer in a way that is, runs counter to the intention of God for that beer. See how that works? And gratitude is a way of acknowledging God's given me this beer. So how can I use this beer in a way that dishonors him? How can I use this beer in a way that flies in the face of his instructions to me on how I'm to use it? Does that make sense? It has a sanctifying effect on every single facet of your life. If I acknowledge sex comes from God, this glorious, weird, and it's the strangest thing on earth, let's just admit it. God's given me this thing called sex. How then could I really truly be grateful to God and then misuse it. That, that doesn't make any... Those two things don't go together. Gratitude to God sanctifies the way that we use things. Here's the second thing it does. It builds into your home for you and for your children a, a, a kind of 
worldview that sees all things as coming from the hand of God. So if you're born a man or you're born a woman, that's not like a, a, a kind of biological accident that happened. It's actually an essential part of God's communication to you about what you're to be and do in the world. Do you understand that? And so by learning to give thanks to God for everything that he brings to you, you can learn to give thanks to God for your body. You can learn to give thanks to God for your, um, even if you're a girthy man like me, um, you can learn to give thanks to God for the beer that you drink so that you don't have too many beers when you drink it. You can learn to give thanks to God for your children, um, whatever their disposition, even if they're like little fire plugs. Like it, you learn to receive all of these things from the hand of God. And you, you, your life transforms from this kind of self-constructed image that you want to pursue or this self-wrought kind of understanding of what happiness is. Um, to rather you begin to understand every single facet of your life, your children included, um, that your role is steward. You're a steward of this beer, you're a steward of this body, you're a steward of this child, you're a steward of this marriage, you're a steward of this thing called sex, you're a steward of whatever job God has given you. I mean, you're a steward of all of these things. And you want to receive them with gratitude and steward them faithfully. And so you want to train your children to think of the world that way. You sit down to eat. Why, I mean, why do Christians pray before meals? When I came to this crisis point, I was at Wheaton College, my junior year in college, and it was like this giant public virtue signal. Like you go into the cafeteria for lunch and everyone makes a very solemn public demonstration that they're not going to eat until they've prayed. It's just like the whole room. It's like everyone sits down. You can't just sit down and start eating. And so I started going like, why the heck do we do this? Why are, I mean, but why do we pray before a meal? So it's a simple and small way of acknowledging God gave us this meal. And I'm thankful to him for it. So, so it, make your home a place where, where gratitude is normal. It's expected. And, and, and don't, don't think of gratitude merely as a feeling. So if you don't feel grateful, you don't have to say it. There's, a, there's this wonderful set of practices of learning to say thank you. Um, training yourself <coughs> in the discipline of acknowledging your, that gratitude that then um, oftentimes begins to actually cultivate gratitude in your heart. Third thing, I'm gonna, I have to wrap up in four minutes, and I have a lot more points here. Um, third thing, don't underestimate the powers. Do not underestimate them. Um, as you're raising children, don't underestimate the powers. Their influence how they can inculcate an entire way of thinking, an entire framework for the world, and you won't even know it. <clears throat> the entire public school system is a discipleship program in this way of thinking. Okay? Um, movies, Disney, TV. As I'm watching football on a Saturday afternoon, and one of the kids comes and plops down on the couch beside me. Every freaking commercial. Like, even the ones about, like, psoriasis. They're immersed in this whole framework, this way of thinking. Don't underestimate it. You need to understand it is everywhere. It's on billboards when you're driving down the highway. 
I mean, it, it is inescapable. The power is doing everything possible to make this simply the air that you breathe, and to make it simply your way of thinking about your marriage. And here's the deal. The way you think about your marriage and the way that your children think about the world. This way of thinking is what destroys marriages. It becomes the foundation for every act of adultery that's ever been committed. It becomes the foundation for every severance in a marriage that happens late in the marriage. This just doesn't make me happy anymore. I don't know that I love you anymore. root of that is just me. Me, 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 me. You don't fit in my conception of what my fulfilled life looks like anymore. Go to war. Do do, do not underestimate the presence of that kind of way of thinking about the world and assuming that the world is and assuming who you should be. It's just just hardwired into everything. And if it gets in there and rewires your thinking, You're going to find yourself making excuses for all kinds of wickednesses and sins and injustices that would destroy people and destroy you. So don't underestimate the way it affects you. Don't underestimate the way it affects your family, your children. Second thing, or I don't know, this like I've gone completely out of order. This is somewhere between number three and number six. Uh, Do not overestimate the powers. Which maybe a better way to put it is, is do not underestimate the power of God. Um, and so one of the, I grew up in a more fundamentalist bent home, uh, really church, in which the reaction to discovering, you know, that I think they, they said, like they had, I think it was actually called Gay Day um, at Disneyland or something, at our church announced a boycott. We don't watch Disney movies. We don't go to Disneyland or World. And we don't wear Mickey Mouse ears. We're not doing that stuff. Um, or, you know, Coke-sponsored Gay Day at Disneyland. And so no one drinks Coke anymore. <laughs> We're out on the Coke. And we don't ever watch, allow our kids to watch anything that would have a cuss word in it. Or we don't um, allow them to watch anything that might have an anti-Christian message in it. Now, the problem with all of that is... Um, as Paul says, God's, or as Jesus prays, like God's placed us in the world, um, and he wants us to keep us from the, the influence, the power the, uh, of the evil one, but not that he would take us out of the world altogether. We're supposed to live in the midst of the world. But one of the, one of the kind of common parenting techniques in that kind of environment is, my children should never watch anything that might trick them into thinking something bad about the world. My kids should never read literature. That might convince them that the world evolved or came out of a big bang. They shouldn't read literature that makes them think about the world in an anti-Christian way. We need to keep them safe from the world. Now there's, um, at the heart of that, something that's actually true. Like your job as as a father and a mother for your kids is, absolutely, to defend your kids from the world. But don't do that by underestimating the power of God. Um... And, and here's what I mean. Because your, your children are going to be, for the rest of their lives, immersed in a world in which they are surrounded by a kind of secular, humanistic, autonomous self version of the world, one of your jobs is to help them see it. And to see how pervasive it is. Uh, 
um, Nate Wilson, I don't know if you, Indy Wilson, I think, anyway, he's an incredible author, his dad is Doug Wilson, and um, he told a story to me a few years ago uh, that was a little bit shocking to me, um, particularly kind of everybody's outsider's perspective on what the Wilson family is like. And he said, hey, when I turned 16, my dad sat down with me, we watched a rock music video that was very popular at that time. I picked out the song, we watched it on MTV. Um, and uh, it was the most annoying five-minute music video I've ever watched in my entire life because my dad kept stopping it. He stopped going, hey, what are they doing there? What were the lyrics? What are they trying to do with that? What are they trying to sell you there? What are they trying to get you to believe about yourself there? What are they trying to get you to believe about women there? I told him, kind of walked him through that whole process, and then he said, look, here's the deal. You, at this point now, can watch anything that you want to watch. Any movie you want to watch, any TV show you want to watch. At this point, kind of, we've, kind of, we've managed all of that. At this point now, we're saying you can watch anything you want to watch, short of it being sin to watch it. So, pornography, nudity, those kinds of things. We're not going to watch that because it would be a, actually be participating in sin to watch that. But, but any story, any movie, we can watch it. So long as you watch it with me. And he said, watching movies with my dad at first was the worst, and then it became the best. Because we would watch stuff, and then we would stop. Sometimes we'd stop in the middle of it. Sometimes we'd wait till the very end of the story. We'd sit down, and we'd go like, hey, what was going on there? What's, what, what worldview is the base of that? How, how do we understand the self? Who is God? What is good? What is evil? Is evil glorified? Is evil win? Is evil bad in that story? Is good good? walking through all of those stories in such a way as to say, look and see what's going on. Um, your kids should get tired of, of all the times that you stop and go, hey, did you see that billboard? That just said that if I wear the right deodorant, women will run to me to have sex with me. Did you see it? Did you see what was implicit in the narrative being told there? This said that if I drink Coca-Cola and listen to my AirPods... I will be very, very happy. My life will turn into a music video where I dance really well with cool colors and shadows and stuff around me. Like you should constantly be stopping, constantly be helping your children um, recognize, hey, here's what's going on around you. Um, Rather than trying to hide it from them, rather than trying to assume they're not going to notice it because you're afraid they might notice it and they might believe it, instead do not underestimate the power of God. Talk about it. Talk about it by pointing to them to God, pointing them to God's word, pointing them to um, how this is at odds with God and how it's at odds with God's word. And and here's the beautiful thing. All over the place, you're going to find ways that God sneaks stuff in everywhere. Like everywhere. Um, (laughs) So so the TV show, The Handmaid's Tale. Terrible show, right? It's at war with... The patriarchy. Down with patriarchy. Do you know what they end up doing in the course of that story? Affirming motherhood. Being anti-abortion. And they can't help, they, they, they want to be as pro-choice, they want to be as anti-kind of, uh, a kind of pro-feminist vision of the world as you could possibly get. And yet over and over and over again, and this happens in the book as well, they just trip all over themselves reaffirming like basic essential nature of how God's designed the world. And you'll find this everywhere. Now, 
That, that isn't to say sin. That isn't to say watch things that will cause you to sin. Um, that isn't to say in, there's a lot of things out there that just in the nature of watching them, it will be sin. But at the root of the day, at, at the heart of the day, like you are walking with your children in the midst of a world in which they are immersed, immersed in images, messages, stories. They're at war with God. They're already seeing it. So stop and explain it to them. Point it out. Say, here's what's going on. Here's what's being sold to you. Here's what's being said to you. And hold up as an alternative the words of God, a vision of of God's world as God describes it. God's morality, God's ethics, God's rules, God's law, God's grace. Hold up the alternative beside it over and over and over again. Do not underestimate the powers, but don't underestimate, especially don't underestimate the power of God. And the, the last thing I'll say, because I'm completely out of time, um, is keep watch over your own soul. Um, the reason why I, that, I ask that internal, external question um, is because oftentimes uh, we tend to either think of um, the main concern for my kids or for my family as threats to me outside, or we um, often just think that it's, it's just our own sin, that's the only thing that can tear this marriage apart, that's the only thing that could harm my children. Um, the reality is, is that there are external forces seeking to cultivate the presence of sin that's already there. So it's not internal or external. It's recognizing the fact that this world, um, the, 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 and I, by this world I don't mean creation, I mean this society, has been brilliantly designed to exacerbate, strengthen, feed, nourish every sinful impulse in your heart. It's like they're designed that way. And and so, as you're rightly recognizing kind of the the, the wickedness, the sin, the godlessness that's around you, you need to make sure that you are diligent and at work to go to war with sin within you. Go to war with every impulse to assert your independence from God. Every impulse in you to dismiss or to minimize Something that, occur, that, that you see and read in God's word. And at the root of all of it, come back again and again and again to the gospel of Jesus. And that Christ has died for your sins. Christ has died for your sins in such a way that you have died to your sins. And Christ has died for your sins. And in his death, you have died to your sins. And you have died to be from, from the, the life that was enslaved the principalities and powers which constantly seek to rule over you. You now belong to God. Your children belong to God. Your marriage or future marriage belongs to God. Your body belongs to God. Sex belongs to God. Beer belongs to God. College football belongs to God. Kirk Herbstreit belongs to God. He actually does belong to God. Um, He's Christian. Um, the root, like, like, like that be the central kind of thing that you go back to again and again and again. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. God's word describes the world and the world is good and beautiful and holy. And you should receive the world that he's made according to his word. And with eyes wide open, recognize every place in which... Um, Society, the devil, the principalities and powers seek to immerse you in a world 
that, that is redefined and redescribed in ways that are contrary and in rebellion against the words of God. Okay? Uh, so next week we're going to take uh, principles from the sermon series last week and this week and we're going to apply them to your work life, uh, your job, 9 to 5, um, during the week, and think through that stuff together. So let's pray and uh, we'll head upstairs and get ready for worship. Father, we, uh, we often underestimate our enemies, and we always underestimate your power. And so I pray, oh Father, that we would love your word, that we would treasure your word, that we would teach your word, um, that we would live in the world that you've called us to live in. Ca- we, you, we would live in the city that you've called us to live in, in the society that you've called us to live in, but to do it with eyes wide open. Beholding what is beautiful and good, places where people simply cannot escape the, the, the common beauty you've just injected into every corner of this world. And, Father, that we would, we would see with eyes wide open the, the places and the ways um, in, in which you have, uh, in which our neighbors, in which society, in which media corporations, in which movies, in which politics, in which... Um, uh, advertisements in which all of it seeks to undermine and erode and ultimately um, counter and go to war with uh, the way that you've described the world. So God, may we think with clarity. May we, may we love what is beautiful and good and true. May we abhor what is evil. Um, and God, may we be kept by your power through the work of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys. Girl. Thank you.